0: Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Butte in Washington. Today is Wednesday, February 22nd, and here are some of the stories we are covering. There's three more days until Nigeria's historic presidential and parliamentary elections.
1: Where in the past the race had usually been between two major political parties, we now see the emergence of a third political party.
0: Zimbabwe's opposition foresees a rough presidential and legislative election campaign later this year. U.S. First Lady Jill Biden prepares for her first visit to Namibia and Kenya. President Joe Biden addresses the world ahead of Ukraine war's first anniversary. Amnesty International calls for an independent, impartial, and effective investigation into the killing of Eswatini human rights lawyer Tulani Maseko. Our
2: biggest concern is that since the killing of Tulani Maseko on the 21st, of January. A month later, we don't know exactly what is happening in terms of investigating.
0: And poaching and natural causes decimate Botswana's rhino population. Those stories plus our Black History Month facts of today are coming up on Daybreak Africa. In Nigeria, officials of the Independent National Electoral Commission, known as INEC, concluded a two-day meeting with all local poll monitoring groups on Tuesday. The officials briefed poll observers about the laws and rules that would govern the election monitoring process. Nigerians go to the polls this Saturday to choose a new president, Senate, and the House of Representatives. For more on the two-day meeting between INEC officials and local poll observers, viewers, Peter Klote, who is in the Nigerian capital, Abuja spoke with Mohamed Bassa, the national coordinator for the Alliance of Transparency and Accountability.
3: Before now, we had been in the dark, so to speak, as to whether the polls were going to hold, readiness of EINEC, the commitment of INEC, But I think um, that engagement from yesterday and today has um, allayed most of our fears. So we just hope that other actors in the electoral ecosystem would do their bid. Because it's not just INEC. INEC is just one player. There's the security agencies, there are the political parties, there are the voters. So we just hope that everybody just does their part to ensure that INEC's preparations do
0: not go to waste. I understand INEC officials told you about how prepared they are, uh, reminding of the rules governing, observing elections, but... Did they assure you of the transparency, credibility
3: uh, of the election process? We have been assured as to their preparedness. And um, the new song in the election space this time around is the beavers, the bimodal voter accreditation system, which coming in, many of the political actors actually acknowledge that this is going to change the dynamics because before now people could vote via whatever other means but now that you have to be an actual voter you have to be registered and you have to be so accredited as a voter to be able to actually vote so we hope that this is going to be an upgrade on previous election cycles
0: for your organization how many states Uh, Are your representatives monitoring these elections and will they be in every
2: polling station in the state that you are representing?
3: We have representatives in 18 states and uh, we're deploying about 450 observers. And um, no, they may not be in every polling unit at every point in time, but um, they are at liberty to move from one location to the other, you know, okay. Um, if you arrive prior to commencement of voting, do officials arrive? They have their briefings, so they are there to ensure that officials are there on time, the atmosphere is calm, and then when voting is on, they will go around to ensure that voting takes place as been prescribed by the electoral body.
0: That was Mohamed Bassa, the national coordinator for the Alliance for Transparency and Accountability. He spoke with Viewers Peter Clotty in the Nigerian capital, Abuja. This Saturday's Nigeria election will set the tone for several others across the continent this year. That's the view of Oge Onubogu, director of the Africa program at the Wilson Center. She spoke recently with Heidi Adams, the host of U.S. Straight Talk Africa, here in Washington, D.C., about what to expect when Nigerians vote in landmark elections.
1: Unlike previous elections, these elections will be the seventh election since Nigeria's transition to civilian rule in 1990. And this will be the first election that will be conducted under the new Electoral Act that was just passed in February of 2022. So that's key because there's some new things within the Electoral Act that will inform how these elections are conducted. Apart from that, we've also seen the emergence of new political parties that have basically now expanded the space Where in the past the race had usually been between two major political parties, we now see the emergence of a third political party. That's a good thing, right? And that is a good thing. That shows democratic development in in Nigeria, that that widens the pool and widens options for, for citizens. Apart from that, we also see an increase in youth participation as well. And if we go back to 2020 during the NSAS protest, where young people in Nigeria were protesting police brutality, but as we look at the details around that protest, it it went far beyond just protesting police brutality. I think it was also just a, a protest about wanting more from government wanting more in terms of good governance and we see that a lot of we see a lot of those sentiments translating as we move into these elections when we look at voter registration and just data and information coming from nigeria's independent Ele- uh, national election commission we see the optic in the number of registered voters right. especially youth And that's amazing to see that uptick coming from coming from the 2019 elections, where where there was low turnout. And, you know, a lot of people were actually talking about voter apathy in future elections. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing to see more young people now wanting change, but wanting change through the ballot box. That in itself, it's a positive and something that should be noted.
0: That was Oge Onubogu, director of the Africa program at the Wilson Center, speaking to Straight Talk Africa host Heidi Adams in Washington, D.C. You can catch the rest of that interview today, Wednesday's edition of Straight Talk Africa. Zimbabwe opposition leader, Nelson Chamisa, of the Citizens Coalition for Change, the Triple C, says he foresees a rough presidential and legislative election campaign against incumbent Emerson Mnangagwa. Chamisa told the French press agency, AFP, that his party must be prepared for a hostile electoral environment. His comments come as President Mnangagwa this week officially published the constituency allocation report, which determines seats in the National Assembly that set the stage for for elections later this year, Gift Ostalo Siziba is the deputy spokesperson for Chamisa's Triple C Opposition Party. He tells me that the pre-election environment in Zimbabwe is marred by violence and intimidation, but he says the opposition has been busy building an alternative that would be able to answer the material questions of ordinary Zimbabweans.
4: The pre-election environment in Zimbabwe is pointing into a fraudulent process, a process that does not reflect the details of the constitution. And also, the pre-election environment is marred by violence and harvest of fear, where the PF regime, as led by Mr. Nangagwa, is using violence as a tool to mobilize and organize society against the details of the constitution.
0: How is your party preparing for the election.
4: Thank you very much. Our strategic focus is on, number one, building a credible alternative. We have been involved in a program of action to ensure that we build an alternative that is able to answer the material questions of ordinary people and not become an asymmetrical reproduction of the same soap required, which we intend to replace. So our program of action involves the following issues. Number one, We have clear policies at the level of scientific and logical policy framework that is able to answer the material needs of ordinary people in terms of the day-to-day questions of livelihood. Number three is a broad foreign policy direction which seeks to answer what Zimbabwe under Nelson Chamisa will look like. So that is our focus. It's about building a credible alternative. Outside that is obviously about tightening our electoral infrastructure to make sure that we've got agents across the country, to make sure that we are ready to engage citizens across the country on a radical political mobilisation programme, which is about informing citizens on our policies, informing citizens of what we do differently. For example, we are in the countryside, and our focus is what we call development and urbanization of rural areas, Lura, which is a program that seeks to mobilize rural areas around how we need to transform rural areas so that we develop our country and make our lives of ordinary people better.
0: I just read an article quoting your leader, Nelson Chamisa, as describing the election climate or the environment to be very hostile. I wonder what does he mean? Of course, without
4: a doubt. We are having an election without democracy. We are having an election where the referee with the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission has chosen the side of our opponents. So it's an election without democracy. And the menu of manipulation includes the following. Number one, harvest of fear. Number two, intend to staff ballots; Number three, gerrymandering. We have read the delimitation report. Is so revealing about the extent of which the elite in Salisbury or in Harare as it is today intends to manipulate the election in favor of the ruling establishment.
0: Gift Ostalo Siziba is the deputy spokesperson for Zimbabwe's main opposition Citizens Coalition for Change. He was speaking with me from the Zimbabwe capital, Harare. <laughs> You are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America and James Button, Washington. Today is Wednesday, February 22nd. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And still to come on our program, our Black History Month Facts of today, February 22nd. Jill Biden leaves today Wednesday for her first visit to Africa as First Lady with plans to visit Namibia and Kenya. There, she will focus on women's empowerment, children's issues, and the food insecurity that has ravaged parts of the continent. Viewers Anita Powell, who is traveling with the First Lady, reports from Washington.
5: Jill Biden visited Africa five times as Second Lady, highlighting the plight of the powerless. Here she spoke at the continent's largest refugee camp in Dadaab, Kenya, in 2011.
6: The mothers are bringing their children from Somalia, walking sometimes 15, 20, 25 days, and they lose their children along the way. The children die. So what I'm asking is, is for Americans just to maybe reach out and help, and, uh, because the situation here is dire.
5: Now First Lady, she returns to Kenya this week. She will also visit Namibia, the first U.S. First Lady to do so since the nation gained independence three decades ago. In addition to focusing on women and children, the First Lady will also draw attention to the dire food insecurity that is again gnawing at East Africa. In December, President Biden announced a $2 billion humanitarian package to combat the problem in the
7: region. Assistance is going to help ensure that children and families don't have to go to bed hungry.
5: Presidential spouse visits often provide a contrast to the strategic, muscular approach of the presidency, partly because, as Jill Biden herself points out, she has no executive authority and no mandate from American voters.
6: I know that I wasn't elected, but I knew that I had a part to play. And as spouses, we serve the people of our countries, too, don't we? And we see their hearts and their hopes, we witness the small miracles of compassion and generosity between neighbors. We know what can happen when communities come together and how much can change when we work towards a cause that's really so much bigger than ourselves.
5: U.S. First Ladies are generally well-received on the African continent, said Katherine Jellison, professor of U.S. Women's History and Gender History at Ohio University maybe because they have an advantage over the president.
1: There's just going to be warmer feelings toward a non-politician who's visiting than a politician, because there may be strings attached.
5: Meanwhile, the Biden administration has been wooing Africa to support Ukraine over Russia and recently dispatched Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to Senegal, Zambia, and South Africa. And Russia's foreign minister has this year visited multiple nations that have historic or ideological ties to Russia or the former Soviet Union, like Mali, Sudan, and Angola. China sent its new foreign minister to Africa for his maiden voyage, a sign of that nation's deep interest in the continent. The First Lady's visit opens Wednesday and is expected to last five days. Anita Powell, VOA News, the White House.
0: Ahead of the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, U.S. President Joe Biden delivered a major speech yesterday, Tuesday, in Warsaw, Poland.
7: One year into this war, Putin no longer doubts the strength of our coalition. But he still doubts our conviction. He doubts our staying power. He doubts our continued support for Ukraine. He doubts whether NATO can remain unified. But there should be no doubt. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. NATO will not be divided, and we will not tire. (laughs) President Putin's craven lust for land and power will fail and the Ukrainian people's love for their country will prevail. Democracies of the world will stand guard over freedom today, tomorrow, and forever. So that's, what it's, that's what's at stake here, freedom. That's the message I carried to Kyiv yesterday, directly to the people of Ukraine. Kyiv stands proud. It stands tall. And most important, it stands free. When Russia invaded, it wasn't just Ukraine being tested. The whole world faced a test for the ages. Europe was being tested. America was being tested. NATO was being tested. All democracies were being tested. And the questions we faced were as simple as they were profound. Would we respond or would we look the other way? Would we be strong? Would we be weak? Would we, we, all of our allies, would be united or divided? One year later, we know the answer. We did respond. We would be strong. We would be united. And the world would not look the other way. So tonight, I speak once more to the people of Russia. The United States and the nations of Europe do not seek to control or destroy Russia. The West was not plotting to attack Russia, as Putin said today. And millions of Russian citizens who only want to live in peace with their neighbors are not the enemy. This war was never a necessity. It's a tragedy. President Putin chose this war. Every day the war continues is his choice. He could end the war with a word. It's simple. If Russia stopped invading Ukraine, it would end the war. If Ukraine stopped defending itself against Russia, it would be the end of Ukraine. That's why together we're making sure Ukraine can defend itself. The United States has assembled a worldwide coalition of more than 50 nations to get critical weapons and supply.
0: That was U.S. President Joe Biden speaking Tuesday in Warsaw, Poland. Amnesty International has called on Eswatini to conduct an independent, impartial, and effective investigation into the killing of human rights lawyer Tulani Maseko. Tulani was shot three times through the window of his home on January 21st. The Eswatini Multi-Stakeholders Forum has called for an international commission of inquiry because it says it does not trust the government. The government says the country is a sovereign state and can do its own investigations. The African Union meeting this past weekend in Addis Ababa expressed concern about the unfolding situation in the kingdom of Eswatini. Robert Shivambu is the media manager for Amnesty International responsible for the southern African region. He tells me that Eswatini is obligated under international law to investigate the killing of Tulani.
2: Our biggest concern is that uh, since the killing of Tulani on the 21st of January, a month later, we don't know exactly what is happening in terms of investigating and bringing the perpetrators of his killers to justice or to account for the murder so as amnesty international we are saying that authorities should be facilitating an independent fair, impartial transparent and effective investigation into his killing to bring the perpetrators or his killers to justice so a month after Tulani Masek was gone down, it remains unclear what steps the Iswatini authorities have taken to facilitate that independent investigation. And we stress independent because we don't believe that uh, the Iswatini government is capable of doing this investigation. They need to mandate or facilitate an international investigation into his killing to identify and bring to justice the perpetrators of this crime.
0: The civil society and pro-democracy groups in Eswatini have been demanding international involvement. The government of Eswatini says, we are a government and we have our own security apparatus. We can do our own investigation.
7: I think it's very
2: important for us to state the context in which the murder of Tulane Maseko happens James. This unlawful killing came amid an escalation in attacks on critics many of whom have been calling for political reforms in the country. You will remember that the newspapers have been reporting that hours before Tulan was killed the king said that those who are disturbing peace in the country should not complain when mercenaries go after them in the country. So within that context, we believe that the Eswatini government is not the right government to be able to carry out this investigation. So this is why we're saying that the Eswatini government should not be the one that conducts the investigation, because you will know that the monarch is also resistant to political reforms in the country. The government is also resistant to political
0: reforms. You know, I'm looking at the communique of the just concluded African Union Summit in Addis. And the communique expresses concern, what they call the unfolding situation in the kingdom of Iswatini.
4: Yes, I think
2: you would have seen uh, following the death of Tulani Maseko that almost every institution around the world that stands up for human rights and freedom of expression, association and assembly and civil and political rights has come out basically calling for a full and impartial investigation into the killing of uh, of Tulani Maseko.
0: That was Rabo Chivambu, media manager for Amnesty International, responsible for the Southern African region. He was speaking with us from Cape Town, South Africa. And here now are our African-American and African History Facts for today, February 22nd. On this day, 1950, basketball star Julius Winfield Irving was born in Hempstead, New York. His acrobatic move on the quote won him the nickname Dr. J. His career as a basketball player began in 1976 with the Philadelphia 76ers and lasted until 1987. During that time, Dr. J led the 76ers to the NBA Finals four times and won the championship. Championship In 1983 on this day in 1989 singer Tina Turner won a Grammy for best female rock vocalist Tina Turner became one of the oldest female artists in history to stage such a strong comeback she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1991. Did you know that Douglas L. Wilder was the first black to be elected governor in the United States since Reconstruction? In 1989, Wilder was elected governor of the state of Virginia. Prior to Wilder, only one other black person has served as governor. He is PBS Pinchback, who briefly served as governor of Louisiana in 1872 after the sitting governor there was impeached. On this day in African history in 1966, Ugandan Prime Minister Apollo Milton Obote ordered the arrest of five of his cabinet ministers and assumed the presidency. Obote had been implicated with his army commander, General Idi Amin, in a scandal involving a collection of gold and ivory taken from neighboring Congo. And on this day in African history in 1964, Ghana's founding President Kwame Nkrumah declared a one-party state, the Convention People's Party, with himself as life president. Some say it was one of Nkrumah's biggest mistakes because two years later, Nkrumah will be overthrown in a military coup d'etat. And that's it for this Wednesday, February 22nd edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming aboard with us this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at v oaAfrica.com. connect with us on all social media platforms we are on facebook twitter and instagram we are also on youtube where you can watch our tv shows africa 54 straight talk africa and red carpet on behalf of the daybreak africa team i am james barter in washington wishing that you will have a wonderful day